What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of VGM Generations. I'm Mike Posbon, and with me this time is Norm Garrett. Hey, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Big lead up. And Aaron Balachuk. Hi. There we go. And for those that don't know, VGM stands for Video Game Music, and we are taking you through the generations. Basically, once a week, three friends with very gaming backgrounds get together and take you through some of their favorite music from the games they love. And remember to stick around to the end of the episode for contest details, just like Callum McEwen from Scotland did <gasps> what? on Twitter last Scotland. month. Scotland, that's right. Mm. He's our big winner, and we will be reaching out to see which game he would like for free. That's Pyre Celeste or Sonic Mania, one of the best giveaways we've ever done. And uh, in this month's episode, we are talking about point-and-click adventures, and that is thanks to... Callum McEwen. So this uh, Callum wrote me on Twitter and said, hey, have you guys ever considered doing point and click? And I was like, well, send me some send me some suggestions. And he sent me a bunch of games. And so two of his picks uh, that he sent me will be my pick. So we're bringing back. We're pseudo bringing back the fan pick. I kind of want to know we what uh, started this podcast out with. So I want to know what else he had on the list. I mean, point and clicks are my jam. So yeah, you know. no. Yeah. Well, I was t- I told yeah. him on on uh, Twitter that you were considering breaking off and starting your own <laughs> point and click <laughs> adventure music podcast. But uh, yeah, so I'll go first with um, what is actually uh, in actually Callum's first pick. But this is a game I picked up and played, and that is Thimbleweed Park. So um, game developed and published by Terrible Toy Box uh, that came out just last year, and the music was by a guy named Steve Kirk, probably one of the easiest names I'll ever have to say on this podcast. <laughs> so um, uh, Callum wrote me and he said, "Thimble." so the track is Thimbleweed Opener, basically the title track. Um, and uh, Thimbleweed Park was developed by Ron Gilbert, the legendary Ron Gilbert of uh, Monkey Island fame, Monkey Island fame and... and uh, all the other big point and click many, adventures. Many, many LucasArts classics. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Thimbleweed opener has a very Twin Peaks vibe, and that's very intentional. This whole game has a very Twin Peaks vibe. Um, so uh, I listened to a couple of interviews with Ron Gilbert, and one of the things he said was he was trying to, with Thimbleweed Park, recapture that charm that's kind of been lost uh, from that, you know, that era of point and click with, you know, it's all... The, the pixelation and the pixel graphics give it a charm kind of yeah. thing. Well, I actually have to kind of say in this, first of all, I want to preface this by saying that, uh, the, like, I don't know if you're going to mention that uh, Thimbleweed Park was a Kickstarter. It was, yeah. Yes, I and uh, I actually was a backer of that Kickstarter. So that that started, I think, like back in 2014 or something like that. Yeah, it was way back. ridiculous because that means, like, I've been following updates and been getting, like, waiting for that game for a really long time. Yeah, three, and now that it's finally out, it just basically got piled into my backlog, which is really sad because I love Ron Gilbert. I was really excited for Thimbleweed Park, but I haven't touched it yet. But speaking of uh, like the fact that it's a throwback with those classic graphics and everything like that, one thing they did do on this one is make it a talkie. So they actually did do a full vocal track for this game. Yeah. And as, as a LucasArts purist, I'm kind of thinking when I play this, do I even want to play it with the voices? Yeah, because, it's risky. Yeah, <laughs> in a lot of cases... Um, because uh, I mean, it's hit and miss. Like, yeah. for instance, Sam and Max, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Indiana well, I can Jones tell you, the fate of Atlantis, not fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you, I did, I did pick this game up uh, so I could talk, uh, you know, more intelligently about it. And the voice acting is phenomenal. It's hilarious. It's done super well. They use it for multiple jokes. Like a lot of the jokes you won't get if you don't listen to the listen to the vocals, because it's like there are jokes that are in the voice track kind of thing. And I probably will. It's just that the purist in me just wants to see yeah. like that colorful blocky text on the screen. Yeah. Well, and, just and they leave that. it up yeah, there. Yeah. Like you, you still get the subtitles, yeah. but, um, 
but yeah, it's great. The, the, the voice acting is fantastic. Um, so the game is sent set in 1987 and that not only is that because it like suits the, uh, vibe of the game or like the vibe of these shows that came out in the, around that era, it's because that was the year that maniac mansion was released. And, um, my last note before we listen to the music is, uh, like you said, came out on Kickstarter and raised $620,000 on Kickstarter. So very successful, <laughs> very successful Kickstarter. Like it, it's just, I just don't want to say like that just proves like what has happened on Kickstarter with point and clicks. Like it was largely considered not really a dead genre, but like a niche genre, not really a lot yeah. of people were interested in it kind of thing. And then of course, um, Tim Schafer and double fine did their double fine adventure Kickstarter. And that was like the first video game Kickstarter that raised like over a million dollars and it was like a huge deal. It was Double Fine Adventure, which eventually became Broken Age. And yeah. that just proved there was an appetite for this. So then you start seeing things like Thimbleweed Park. And it's beautiful to me to see these uh, these point and click adventures being these like big darling of the uh, of the Kickstarter. And well, it's the best thing community. about Kickstarter, right? Is yeah. that it's like it's not the developer telling the audience what they should play. It's the audience telling the developer what they want to play. Yeah. Right. So it's like, is there any interest for this? Yes, there is. Then we'll make it. And it's great. It's funny. Cause in a lot of cases, I don't think they really knew what they were getting into. It's kind of like, we're interested in doing this. We think some people be interested in doing yeah. this. And then they put it out there and say, and Hey, if you want to support this back us, and then they're just flooded. Right. There's a ravenous yeah. appetite. Right. Yeah. So anyway, great, great Kickstarter success story, but let's listen to Thimbleweed opener from Thimbleweed park. I listened to, I found one interview that Steve uh, Kirk hasn't done a lot of interviews about this game. He seems like one of those guys who's kind of more likes to be in the background, mm -hmm. not come forward. He's but, not a limelight guy. Yeah. So, uh, but he was at, uh, I, I think it was GDC last year uh, talking about this game because it was right after it had launched. And um, 
they were actually doing an interview interview with Ron Gilbert and he was just standing off to the side. And then the guy like saw him and he's like, Hey Steve, get in here. So it was good. Uh, so you said, um, one of his big challenges because it has such a twin peaks vibe is to reference it, but not copy it. Right. Cause that's the, the fine line you want to ride. You want to have, you know, evoke the, or what is evoke it? evoke? Thank you. Evoke those emotions, but not do a direct copy. So people yeah. are like, Oh, you just ripped off twin peaks. And I mean, it's obvious even when you see like just the, like the cover of the thing, like the actual yeah. graphics from it is that you think twin peaks, but knowing like Ron Gilbert, it's just going to take that as a concept to get it in your mind and then go totally off the rails with yeah, it. Yeah, right? exactly. So, <laughs> so I, I'm also kind of a fan of twin peaks. So I, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. If you want to speak to that, cause I've never even seen twin peaks. So, well, I, all I can say about it is that I wasn't like a fan back in the day or anything like that. Um, I didn't actually get into it until I think it appeared on Netflix. And then yeah. my wife and I just said, let's watch Twin Peaks. So we kind of made it our date night thing is every okay. Friday we would get together and watch. And we did it like, we instead of binge watching it, just every week, watch another episode of Twin Peaks and got really intri- into it. But there's a point in the show uh, where things kind of fall off the rails a little bit okay. and we kind of fell out of it. So, okay, I, so you I didn't admit, finish it. I admit we didn't finish the whole series, um, like the whole first series, but with the recent re not reboot, but sequel to twin peaks that has come out. I really want to get into that, but I feel like I can't until I finished the first series. Yeah. So. Cause it'll probably, you'll get lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I just want to say like, it's a great, it's a great quirky show with a lot of great quirky characters and Kyle McLaughlin and agent Cooper is, is awesome. So yeah. yeah. So obviously there's agents in this yeah. game as well. Um, it's, uh, also I gotta, I, I, I don't know, but it feels like not just twin peaks, but might be referencing a bit of an X-Files kind of vibe. Well, and that's the vibe I got yeah. was X-Files because I don't know twin peaks, but I do know a bit of X-Files. So I was like, Oh, this feels very X-Files. Yeah. So and even X-Files was influenced by twin peaks. Right. So, yeah, yeah. They kind of all influence each other. Right. So, um, he, uh, Steve Kirk, uh, describes the music for the game as a concerto for baritone guitar and orchestra, hmm. which I thought was great. <laughs> um, cause he said he's, he played, he's a big guitar player. He really likes guitar. And so when he brought, uh, the music to Ron, he was like, do you like guitar music? And he's like, yeah, I love it. And he was like, perfect. So he did a, a lot of guitar pieces for it. Um, dark and moody and, uh, kind of slower paced because it is that, you know, investigative vibe. You don't want upbeat action music. You want that more, you know, yeah moody music there's a lot of in point and click adventures there's a lot of standing around and thinking and looking so you know yeah exactly (laughs) yeah 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 so and then um also um like we've talked about in lots of other podcasts it's one of those things where he said he had to make the music um compose it so that every piece could flow into every other piece seamlessly because you can play the game in a sort of non-linear style like a little bit so you can you know jump around in different areas so it can't be too jarring when you make those switches um the other thing is the game, obviously, uh, being a Ron Gilbert game, has a ton of comedy in it. And so the interview asked him, he's like, so how did you score that so that to retain the comedy? And he's like, you cannot, you just don't acknowledge it at all. Because if you acknowledge it, it becomes cartoony. Yeah. So by playing it straight, it stays a joke, right? Like if you acknowledge it, you almost ruin the joke. So mm. so the music, the the tone of the music never changes even when something ridiculous happens. Yeah, the it's music's that, the like, straight man, essentially. Exactly, the, uh, in the, of the straight yeah, comedy yeah. duo, the music's the straight man. Perfect. Um, and then uh, he said that his favorite uh, piece of music to compose was not this one, but the circus piece. And I'm going to play that uh, piece at the end of the, at the, end of the podcast. Um, and the reason he liked it... so just to give you like a tiny spoiler, there's like a part in the game where you go to this like old kind of broken down circus. And so the music 
reflects that. It's kind of like a broken down circus piece. And uh, he said he liked composing it because it was fun to write something so demented <laughs> is what he said. <laughs> I gotta say, and, what's with Ron Gilbert and circuses? Because in the very first Monkey Island, like he's got a, thing, a prominently yeah. <laughs> featured circus. And then, of course, in Monkey Island, like two and three, like um, theme park kind of stuff. So yeah. like. He's, it must have been a big part of his childhood or something. Maybe, eh? maybe he was maybe really he's traumatized and he just got to get that circus out of him. Yeah, so. maybe. I don't know. But anyway, and, and this is like a messed up circus. So yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, with a messed up clown. But um, I'll play that piece at the uh, I'll play that piece at the end of the podcast. And so you can hear that demented circus piece. So, uh, Norm, what do you have for us this week? All right. I'm going to be talking about. Shadowgate, uh, which came out in 1987 originally for the Macintosh computer. Uh, it probably was the first point-and-click adventure game and possibly the first computer game I was ever exposed to. Uh, so Now, I got to ask, like, was it technically a point-and-click? So was it mouse-driven or was it uh, yeah. more, more of the uh, text Keyboard. parser it, kind of... It was uh, mouse-driven. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and actually it was... It, it had kind of separated itself from other point, point and clicks of that particular time because, like you said, they were largely keyword driven and stuff. And mm. another thing that separated it from them, from other other ones of the time, was it was a first person perspective. So where normally you're, you know, you're moving your character around and interacting with the environment. Same idea, except you're seeing it from a first person perspective. So, um, yeah, like a wizardry kind of style perspective if you guys are familiar with the wizardry games it's kind of that but it is um it, it's considered a point and click adventure um there were kind of four of them made for macintosh they're the engine they used was called the mac venture engine um there was deja vu <laughs> yeah you've probably heard of deja vu uninvited yeah i was gonna actually when you mentioned the first person perspective i was gonna say mm -hmm. oh so kind of like uninvited yeah, and Deja Vu and Deja Vu and Uninvited were, of course, in NES titles as well. Uh, like they reported to the NES. All of these games were oh Shadowgate uh, eventually. Oh, yeah, okay. Shadowgate. So that's one of the things is the music. I didn't really experience the music if uh, it, you know on the Macintosh. I did in the NES version much later. So the music I've chosen is actually from the NES version, ah. which didn't exist in the Mac Venture engine driven. So there was no music in the original Shadowgate? No, hmm. no. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think they uh, they ported it in Japan to NES and they had a Japanese composer uh, do the music. I guess it's considered one of the worst games for <laughs> NES in Japan and it makes a lot of like well, worst game lists. I remember because my local rental place had Deja Vu and Uninvited and I rented both of those because I was interested in them but it was always like a wasted weekend because you never made any progress and mm -hmm. I could barely figure them out so it was kind of like why yeah. did I rent this when I could have just Is rented DuckTales for a 50th time yeah probably the <laughs> NES the NES one was pretty cumbersome and, and hard to uh, hard to play it was also heavily censored uh, as <laughs> many Nintendo games were of the time and one of the big things that I really liked about Shadowgate that really gripped me was uh, it was a very treacherous and visceral world lots of ways to die like um one of the mechanics is you had to it had kind of an imposed time limit in that there was a finite number of torches in the world and you always had to have a torch burning 
or you would trick trip over a flagstone and break your neck. That's super mean. That's the yeah, worst thing I've mean. ever heard. So y- you can see if you look at a screenshot of it, especially yeah. the Macintosh version, there's kind of an inventory window off to the left and it's just torches everywhere. Yeah. One's on fire and then there's just like haphazard. This is like the proto Ultima underworld or something like that. I guess, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's the only kind of real time element is that you have so many steps while your torch burns down. That must be one of the, still to this day, like the hardest part of game development is setting a difficulty, right? It's just like, cause some games nail it and it's so good. It like starts easy, works up gradually. And like the final boss battle is the hardest thing, but like games like this, it's like, well, what were they thinking? It's funny that you talk about that. Cause I'm going to talk about a bit about when I get to mine too. But it, when you talk about difficulty, it's interesting looking at like the big players of like the, I guess you could say the golden era of point and click ad- adventures, which were like Sierra online, Sierra and LucasArts yeah. and their philosophies towards that. Cause in a Sierra game, you do the wrong thing. You look at somebody the wrong way. You are dead. Yeah. It's like game over. it will kill you every step of the way easily. And then LucasArts went with this like non-punishing way where it couldn't kill you. Mm-hmm. Like you would go through the game and like you could always, you never got to an unwinnable state. You always could keep pushing through. You could always solve the problem. You just had to travel around and think about what you had in your inventory, that kind of stuff. In fact, they even made a joke about it. And I know I mentioned this in Monkey Island where it looks like you die. Oh, yeah. And then it's a joke. You don't actually die. But it's just funny that those philosophies on difficulty where, you know, Sierra designed to be that punishing and LucasArts hard like the puzzles are hard but you know you never actually get to an unwinnable state and then in like other games like monkey at curse of monkey island the third monkey island game they actually had difficulty settings so there was like regular monkey island and there was mega monkey mega monkey was like all the puzzles right and it was the <laughs> super, hilarious it was the super difficult version well i would call it the real version of the game because it had all the puzzles and then there was monkey light which was you know some of the puzzles are removed it's a little more forgiving so but it's just like with the games like, you know, like Shadowgate, like you're saying, like, it's like, how did they think like, oh, yeah, the player will find this fun. They got to keep these torches burning all the time. Like, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. And I think the purpose behind these Mac venture games was really to immerse you in this environment and drive a narrative and um, just use this new style because it was new at the time, really. Like these kinds of games were they were kind of cutting edge the computer games at the time, right? Like. Um, maybe they were super excited because of the history they were coming from. Like you talk about the old text adventures like Zork and like Colossal Cave Adventure and stuff like that, where, you know, you didn't have that visual thing. So once they actually had visuals and torches could be a thing, then it was like they got super excited to make that a feature. Maybe a little carried away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that and then, you know, instead of, you know, there'd be a panel in the wall, an odd looking rock, you could click it then. And it mm-hmm. would open and you would get, you know, five more torches or something. Yeah, it was a um, bold new world. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the very visceral descriptions uh, of the deaths and the situations, it uh, stuck with me. So Shadowgate was always this game shrouded in mystery. And then as, of course, eventually had an NES and was able to get it for that because I didn't have a Macintosh. I played this on my uncle's, at my uncle's office on his Macintosh. So I probably only played it maybe 20 minutes 40 minutes max on the original version. <laughs> it left um, an impression. But yeah, there's like some, like I said, breaking the neck. There's the, this cursed mirror where if you break it, it sucks you into the vacuum of space and just like this weird living castle trying to kill you. Kind of thing. <laughs> Is this castle in space? <laughs> like how do you get sucked into space? It's just a Wait, portal. Yeah, it's just I, a portal. Okay, sorry. By yeah, of course, the, uh, of course. Yeah. It's magic, Mike. It's magic. <laughs> the wizard did My it. bad, my bad. I think the warlock is trying to summon the behemoth from hell which i think they 
probably censored in the NES version. But anyway, on to <laughs> yeah, the probably. music. It's a very Ultima kind of uh, storyline. Yeah. Like I said, my experience uh, with music was with the NES version. There might have been jingles on the Macintosh speaker, but uh, nothing that I would consider yeah. this a is, feature. This is before the era of like uh, PC speakers, yeah. essentially. So yeah. like you had your internal speaker and that was right. it, right? This is, what year is this on the Mac? 1987. Yeah, so this is going back. Well, I debated actually. Before I was born. <laughs> most of the games that um, I've played, uh, those are graphic adventures, is that they had to support PC internal speakers as well as said the sound cards of the day. And I actually was seriously considering mm-hmm. doing PC speaker for like at least one of my picks, just, just <laughs> for the hell of it, but... You know, I, I didn't want to subject anyone to that because it's yeah. pretty rough. Yeah. 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 Um, At the time, though. Yeah. Okay, I got to say. Okay, just a bit of an aside about PC speaker. Um, recently, uh, okay, so v, there's EGA, CGA, VGA graphics, just the progression of more colors, better resolution throughout the, the life of uh, the PC hardware and the PC speaker. Um, these, uh, these hacker, I guess you would call them hackers, um, programmers, wanted to see just how far they could drive these low graphics mode modes. And they made this essentially a demo and somehow they managed to coax something like 16,000 colors out of an EGA or a CGA graphics chipset. It's really weird. Hmm. And, uh, in addition, they got like wizards. Vert. Yeah. <laughs> in addition, they got vert, uh, Jake Kaufman, um, to do the music strictly through PC speaker. So he's he's managed to uh, pull a lot out of just the <laughs> PC speaker. So yeah. do you know I, what this experiment is called? Uh, I can't quite remember, but I'll I'll figure it out. But if so you probably you can, if you look uh, up like vert PC speaker. Yeah. Probably find it. it. it it's pretty recent. I right, just, that sounds cool. I yeah. just want to look it up myself. <laughs> yeah, so. for sure. I was uh, just an aside in my research on the PC speaker came up with that. So yeah. Uh, pretty cool stuff that people can do. Anyway, on to the music, like I said. Uh, the NES version was composed by uh, Hiroyuki Masuno. Uh, I didn't find a lot of credits for him in other games, but I know he did compose the music for Bugs Bunny's Birthday Blowout, <laughs> um, which I don't remember the music if I had played it. But anyway, let's have a listen. This is kind of the entryway music uh, in Shadowgate. <laughs>
definitely heard this music before. You may have heard it. So I mentioned Vert, um, longtime friend of the show. No, we don't. Do <laughs> I wish. That'd um, be great. <laughs> we've uh, mentioned him a billion times. Yeah, he yeah. did a really, really good, smooth mega mix of Shadowgate music. And this, is, this song is how it starts. And it's just, you know, his classic guitars. And um, definitely give that a listen if you like this music. Uh, yeah. His, I think it's just his Shadowgate mega mix. But anyway, more shouts out to Vert. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I can add is they did a remake of this in 2014, which I haven't yet had a chance to try, but it was really well received um, by fans of the series. So um, if you're looking at picking it up, that might be a good way to go. I don't know any... I guess you could always emulate the Macintosh version if you really mm-hmm. wanted to. It's probably... If you're hardcore about it. Yeah, if you're hardcore, but... Uh, well, you said that's what you had to do to get the music, right? Well, this is a good capture of the NES game. This or no, is sorry, actually, this is the NES. Yeah, this yeah, is the sorry, NES. I'm thinking of a different. One. That's a different. This one. is yeah. this is good. This is nice and nice and clear. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I got. I just got to ask: Is this the? Is this ripped by Wii guy, the YouTube guy, who does all the NES soundtracks? The stereo doesn't uh, no. sound like a stereo mix. No. no, it's not a stereo mix. It's. Uh, I think it's just ripped from the NSF file. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times when I hear things ripped from the NSF file, it's just straight up, but this has got a little bit of processing on it. Yeah. Are you talking about the aliasing you can kind of hear? Well, I'm talking about like, it's almost like a little bit of reverb on it that, uh, uh, no, I think, I think, think that's, that's part of it. Part of it. Yeah. I think because it's okay. So here we go. <laughs> here we go. Um, <laughs> buckle up. Strap in everybody. <laughs> it's not, I think it's only using one of the square waves, uh, for the melody. And then it's kind of got a, a quieter, delayed melody on the uh, second square channel and it does create that um, reverb. illusion of a reverb yeah hmm. and it's used in some some tracks yeah it's done really well because it almost actually, sounds like post-processing yeah because yeah. I've actually heard like uh, I've, I've got that 20th anniversary Castlevania soundtrack and like I've heard the Castlevania music from the NES ones a billion times but Konami in the production of that thing has clearly done some post-processing on it. There's like a clarity and a reverb to it, which is not present on the mm-hmm. original track, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And this reminds me of that. Like this is, uh, I'm actually going to check, but I'm, I'm guessing they use that technique for the, uh, for the melody. Cause I don't hear a harmony or anything. So yeah. anyway, that's about it. All right. Uh, Aaron, what do you have for us this week? I went with uh, one of my favorites that's not a Monkey Island title because <laughs> I talk about Monkey Island all the time. Every so I wanted to you can get. break away and do a game that I've kind of been thinking I would love, wanted to do since even the first podcast, but uh, haven't got around to it yet. So uh, one of my passions aside from video games is the Indiana Jones franchise. Very much so, everybody. He's got a full <laughs> Indiana Jones cosplay set. So I should tell you how passionate he is about Indiana Jones. That's a uniform, not a cosplay set. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, uniform, what are you, joining the Indiana Jones army? Get out of right. here. <laughs> uh, so the game I'm doing is actually the first Indiana Jones point-and-click game I played was the original Indiana Jones, the graphic adventure. Is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the graphic adventure, which was... On... On PC, okay, which was an early uh, point-and-click adventure that was based on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and it actually came out with two versions. They had uh, the graphic adventure, which was the point, classic point-and-click, and the action game, which was more of an arcade-style classic video game. So this, the game I'm talking about, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, was essentially the sequel to that. So Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis for the PC originally came out in 1992, developed and published by LucasArts. Uh, gone but not forgotten. We love LucasArts. Or yeah. I, I love LucasArts. They actually put out a really fantastic 
um, book about LucasArts called uh, Rogue Leaders, The Story of LucasArts. Right. It is a really, really neat coffee table book. I highly recommend it. Is it like short stories or? It's kind of like, uh, what do you call it? It's, it's almost like a museum thing. It's, it's heavily, there's like little short stories, but it's little blurbs, a lot of graphics, screenshots, box art you know, anecdotes. So like a history compendium. Like a history compendium kind of thing. It's right. really that kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's really good. Sounds good. So um, though this originally came out in 1992 for the PC on floppy disk, which is the version that I have, it came out a few years later on uh, CD-ROM. What size of floppy disk, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> it came out on uh, five and a quarter inch floppies. Actual- no, actually, no. This one came out on the three and a half inch floppies. Okay, so I was going to say the, the actual floppy disk? No, because no? I'm t- going to be talking about another game. My, the next game that I have, I was going through it the, uh, the other day, and I actually have the original five and a quarter inch floppies yeah. for it. So this one came out on the three and a half inch floppies. And then a few years later, it came out on CD-ROM. The CD-ROM version had the benefit of having full speech. They actually re-recorded all the dialogue, a full talkie. And oh, apparently, wow. Harrison Ford was not available. I'm doing air quotes for uh, yeah, yeah, for uh, recording it. Absolutely, he's not recording. <laughs> Told him to go he's to not hell. doing eight thousand lines <laughs> no. of dialogue for this game. Harrison Ford does not seem like a man who would put up with yeah. that, even in his younger years. So they got a sound alike, and yeah, though a lot of people played this played the talky version first and have a affinity for the actor who played him, Doug Jones or something like that. I can't remember his name. You've heard it. I've heard it. Oh is yeah. It, is it decent or I'm not a fan. Okay. I'm, I don't think you're it, a diehard though. Yeah. Well, I don't think it really like, it doesn't sound like Harrison Ford. Of course that's, that's hard to get, Yeah. but it doesn't really capture the character in my opinion. Okay. Not enough and, of that bravado kind of thing. I originally played this, the non talky version. So I'm reading all the text and in my head yeah. it is, like it bang is bang on, on. and uh, so the writing's good. The writing is fantastic. Okay, in fact, forget Kingdom of the Crystal Skull yeah. it doesn't <laughs> exist. This is the true Indiana Jones four. This is the real sequel. Ooh. In fact, the uh, big the, words. <laughs> in fact, the uh, developer, the main developer of this game, uh, the lead Hal Barwood, he originally was going to, like, they had a copy of an early Chris Columbus written script for Indiana Jones 4. And the game was going to be based on that Chris Columbus script, but he rejected it for being substandard. He basically said, this is no good. I'm going to write my own thing. And he did, and it's good. It's wow. really good. <laughs> it's like the fan, the fan <laughs> sequel kind of thing, It right? is kind of in the way it's a fan sequel, but it is a good story with, like, interesting characters and a great... MacGuffin and a good like the whole the whole thing like the so this is this is a must play for Indiana Jones fans this is a must play for Indiana Jones and you have a lot of ways to play this like this is now on everything it's on okay. Steam in fact the uh, interesting thing about this game is that in 2009 they released an Indiana Jones uh, Indiana Jones game for the Wii called Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings right and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis is an unlockable in that game. So you can actually unlock the full fate of Atlantis game within staff of Kings. That's crazy. Yeah. And staff of Kings is garbage. Do you like find it in a tomb or something. I can't remember exactly the process for unlocking it. I think I did unlock it. Like okay. I bought that game. I unlocked fate of Atlantis and that was the only time I ever played that game. And because you said 
this, the main game is garbage. The main game is garbage. It's just <laughs> absolutely garbage. That's I went, hilarious. You yeah. buy it just to find the other game in the game. Exactly. And while I was doing my research for this, I was thinking about all the Indiana Jones games that have come out. Well, there's a million, there's right? A like million. there's going back to the Commodore and stuff, right? Oh yeah. They're on like, if you think about like the PC and Mac side of things and like the Commodore 64 and like there were a lot of different things, but I was thinking about like even the console stuff. Like there's a super rare game called Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine came out on PC, but they actually released it for the N64 as a Blockbuster exclusive. You could only get it at Blockbuster Video. Right. This is one super of, hard to get. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we were talking about this. It's like yeah. one of the rarest games ever because it was only released at yeah. Blockbuster. And yeah. I have the PC version of that. And that was an okay game. It was, basi- like it was basically Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically a Tomb Raider ripoff. Straight okay. up. Like Tomb Raider ripoff, even though Tomb Raider is kind of an Indiana Jones ripoff. But Infernal Machine is a straight up ripoff of that. And while I was researching for this podcast, I came across a video of... Uh, a game that came out for the PS2 called Indiana Jones and the um, Emperor's Tomb. And I was watching the video for that and I'm like, and it suddenly reminded me what a great game that was. So absolutely, after I'm done this podcast, once I've got like a few free minutes, I'm going to go back and I'm going to play Emperor's Tomb again because it's good. And actually, some of the com- <laughs> one of the composers for um, Fate of Atlantis composed on uh, Emperor's Tomb as well, which is, which is awesome. So I think one day you should just, I'll put on Twitter or something, <laughs> Do like the full spectrum of Indiana Jones games from the worst to the best. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I could absolutely that would be do. like that'd be like a three month endeavor to play all those. Yeah. And number one is Indiana Jones desktop adventures. Oh, okay. No, that's not true. Okay. You guys probably don't even know no what idea. desktop adventure was. Do you know what uh, Star Wars Yoda stories is? Nope. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it was Yoda stories, but Indiana uh-huh. Jones themed. But, uh, and I, oh, sorry. I'm going to do a quick aside because this has come up. <laughs> But, uh, okay, so um, in the early days of Windows, and this, we're talking like Windows 3, 3.1 or whatever. Oh, okay, okay. So this is before Windows 95 yeah. even. They had, uh, maybe it was Windows 95, but they had Indiana, they had this thing called Yoda Stories, which was like this randomly generated quest thing that you play and you would have to, you were Luke Skywalker and you go get a mission from Yoda and you travel across to these planets and you would do various things, but it was all randomly generated. So it was like infinite stories and you could play it forever, whatever. It wasn't that great. There was an Indiana Jones version of it. Exact same thing. I loved it because it was Indiana Jones. And I especially loved it because it was one of the first games I noticed where you could go in and edit the audio files and include your own music and your own sound effects. So I actually re-recorded all my own sound effects for the game. Oh, you recorded them. Which was (laughs) stupid. Like it was mostly just for laughs. It was basically the gun was me saying bang instead of the gun actually firing. So it was... It was stupid stuff like that, but it was fun because it was the first time I actually got to edit that stuff myself. There you go. Anyway, back to we're going to talk about Indiana Jones, the fate of Atlantis. And let's just get into the song right away because I still have more things to, to kind of say about this game. So the song from fate of Atlantis is called Crossing the Desert. And uh, I'll just say something quickly about this. Maybe I have to preface this with something else, too. We talked a bit about the difficulty in games and how hard it was to do point-and-click adventures. Now, Indiana Jones the Fate of Atlantis had a really interesting take on doing difficulty. There's a point in the game where you're presented with a couple of options, where a character says to you, you know, I noticed that you seem to like doing things this way. You can either do things that way, or you can do it, like, you can team up with me. We can go together. You can do things... The, with your fists solving things through action, or you can do things by using your head. So they were, they were called the wits, the fists, and the team path. So you actually, like the game, and the game was pretty different based on what you chose. Now the real way, as far as I'm concerned, is the team path, because that's one where 
you team up with a love interest and you go through the game together and you can talk to each other and there's a lot of back and forth banter. It makes the most sense from a story and movie perspective. You choose the fists path and it's much more arcadey. There's car chases, there's fist fights, there's, you know, actual like sequences where you're doing actiony kind of things. And then the wits path, which is more puzzles. Like it's much more thinky puzzle kind of stuff. Now the song that I picked is called crossing the desert and it only appears in the wits and the fist path. It doesn't appear in the team path. So the first time I played this game, I didn't actually encounter the song, but it's great because there's this part where you're like riding either like a Jeep or a camel through the desert. And it plays this like funny sort of Saharan desert kind of uh, middle Eastern groovy song that goes with it. So it's one that kind of stood out to me from the, from the game. So I wanted to feature that. So let's, let's listen to it and then we can talk a little bit more after that. So this is Crossing the Desert from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. that I'm actually playing is uh, uh, we've, we talked about this I don't know if we talked about this yet on the podcast but when it comes to PC games and all of the different sound options that you have it's impossible to find the one that you want because you play with a specific sound card in my case it was the sound it was the sound blaster and uh, when yeah, I'm back going in the day the sound yeah. card really mattered yeah uh, in oh, terms totally. of the sound that that because the music had to use the sound card, whereas now everything's basically a CD. Yeah. Whereas back then, um, the sound card was determined the sound that was coming out of the computer. Now, this version may be off a, a later edition. This may be off the CD-ROM version, but of course, the first version I played was the Sound Blaster version, and in my head, that is the true version. And it's hard to find that version. You can't find it for download anywhere. You can find a few like long plays of the game, of the different paths on uh, YouTube, 
that do use the Sound Blaster version. So, you know, that's... And then obviously you have all the sound effects in there yeah. if we try to play one of those. Yeah, and I even thought of going back and like going into DOSBox and trying to rip it myself, but there's a, there's a lot involved there. So, I mean, this is a good approximation of the music, but not exactly the one that I you remember from, yeah. from back in the day. So, anyway, so uh, let's see. I've got a few more things here. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, um, this game... Um, got a comic book adaptation from Dark Horse down the road because the story was so good. So other people got to experience it who didn't play the game because they did the comic adaptation. And uh, there were two planned sequels to this game that got scrapped down the road just because LucasArts was involved with other things. They had so many things on the go that they canceled those scrapped, those, those games, even though they had like drafts and stories already prepared. And even though the games never got made, Dark Horse did make comic series based on those sequels so you have can you read still, them i have yeah i actually have the uh there's this series called the indiana jones omnibus and it's basically a compendium of every indiana jones comic ever produced and oh wow i've got them all so and uh, were it uh were the stories in the comics uh as good as the story in the game i would say that uh like if you're going all the way back to the original indiana jones comics that marvel produced they're kind of hit and miss but these dark horse ones that yeah, were actually based yeah, yeah. on those those ones specifically are quite good and i think it's called indiana jones and the uh and the spear of destiny and indiana jones and the iron is it the iron cross iron phoenix i think iron phoenix okay but uh they're they're both quite good and even though this game never got an official sequel there was a time where there were a bunch of fans making sequels to this game and they had websites and teams and they put out concept art and it's like fan makes fan makes. And it's going to be like, this is going to come, this is going to come. And the one even put out a demo. And as far as I'm aware, they never actually nothing materialized, nothing materialized for all I know, some guy in his basement is still working on this stuff this many years <laughs> later. But I went to one of the websites, which is still up. And it's like the last update on the game was 2013. So yeah, it's a while ago. It's a while ago. I would love to see that actually happen because people were obviously putting a lot of love and care into these fan remakes. Well, or not remakes, but but sequels. Sequels, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a unique situation where the story for the game kind of got out, right? So mm. somebody could actually make like an unofficial sequel almost where it's like, or maybe a semi-official sequel um, where... You know, they have the actual story, the story that the, that the developers intended, but just never were able to make. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it'll get kicks there. You never know. <laughs> Maybe. Fingers crossed, it's, man. It's, Fingers it's crossed. the world we live in now. Yep. Uh, another fun fact I wanted to mention about this is that uh, the, a lot of the, a, a lot of the backgrounds in this game were sort of um, drawn in pixel art. And some of them in the later, uh, towards the end of development were actually painted and then scanned in. But the animation for like the lead characters was rotoscoped from actual footage of people. The uh, rotoscoping for Indiana Jones himself. So rotoscoping, if you don't know, is where you basically take footage and you draw over it in, to get the animation. And it was actually rotoscoped over video footage of a guy named Steve Purcell. Now, I don't know if anyone knows who Steve Purcell is, but he, uh, he's familiar to adventure game fans as the creator of Sam and Max. So he worked in Lu at LucasArts at the time. Oh, wow. He snuck his... And Sam and Max were originally comic book characters, and he snuck them into a lot of games. There's a, in a lot of different, like Monkey Islands and stuff like that, you can find Sam and background. Max in there in the background in various <laughs> scenes. And of course, Sam and Max later got their own game, and then Telltale did uh, another follow-up series down the road. But uh, the original body model for the rotoscoping of Indiana Jones was Steve Purcell. So. That's cool. And I'll talk about him a little bit. Uh, That's a good in, Easter egg. Yeah, in, in one of our later episodes this month, so... 
and one other thing, I didn't mention the composers of this. I know I've talked about them in past in past podcasts because uh, I talked about the iMuse system, which was their interactive music sequencer that uh, did like basically remixed the music based on what you were doing in the game. So it was a really cool development. And that was um, done by like three guys. One guy's name is, and I, I can get the Japanese games, but not this guy, Clint uh, Bahakian. Swedish or something? Maybe. Okay. Peter McConnell and Michael Land, or Michael Z. Land, who as he was often credited in the games with a, with a Z on there. So, uh, and I just want to mention these guys really quick just because they did a lot of fantastic work on a lot of LucasArts games, but they continue to be active in uh, the video game industry. So Clint Bahakian actually worked on, um, composed such for such popular series as Uncharted, World of Warcraft, and God of War. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. And uh, Peter McConnell has a very similar story. He did a lot of LucasArts stuff and his career continued when he teamed up with another former LucasArts employee, Tim Schaefer, at Double Fine for a lot of his projects. So you can hear a lot of his work on things like Psychonauts, Bl- Brutal Legend, Costume Quest, and uh, The Broken Age, which was uh, one I already mentioned. So, And also Psychonauts 2, which apparently is getting a release this, this year. Yeah, it's coming so, soon. Yeah, so wow. listen for uh, yeah, pretty prolific, McConnell's work there. Yeah. Prolific uh, composers there. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So, uh, yeah, so that's our picks for this, uh, for this week. And now we ask Aaron, because he went last, what have you been playing, Aaron? What have I been playing? Actually, uh, keeping in with the theme of like graphic adventures and, uh, it's not exactly a graphic adventure. It's more like the modern thing. And it's not, it's not in the same vein as like the puzzle solving. Cause the puzzles are fairly linear and straightforward in this game, but it's a, it's a fairly current game. It's called a way out. Now listeners may have heard of a way out. It, yep. uh, it just came out. It's getting a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, it's one I've been kind of anticipating since it was announced at E3 quite a while back. And uh, I don't really want to, I don't really, uh, here's the thing is I've been avoiding. Spoilers? Spoilers. Okay. I am avoiding spoilers on this. And I've roped in my <laughs> wife to play it with me because it can only be played two players. Yeah. You can yeah, play it's... it online two players, but it's also a couch co-op game. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. And it really does couch co-op in a weird way where it's like there's a, a line down the center of the screen and depending on the importance of uh, what's going on is a lot of time, like if you're just walking around, the other character's talking to somebody, it'll push over. So like you're, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you're just a little tiny section of the screen. Okay. But it's kind of like the Lego uh, games because they would, they would spin the line yeah. in the Lego game. So like well, it wasn't always a static half shot. It would, it would move and twist depending on, and then as it came and, together, yeah. the line would go away. And they and did that dynamically in the Lego movies. Like it wasn't artistically, it was just dynamically driven in the Lego games because yeah. it's basically like the proximity where you were because it was a full big 3d landscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, but it was this just, is, as you came together, this is story based. This is story based. And yeah. this is sort of artistically done oh, cool. based on what's happening in the story. So like, if somebody's having a conversation, it's more important than the conversation the other person is happening, so having somewhere else, then their dialogue will be boosted. And it's just interesting the way it like keeps shifting this line and then coming together. And sometimes the line will push over and it'll be just full screen of one other person's thing. And then another time, like, it's just really interesting how they handle two player couch co-op in this game. So like I said, I wrote my wife into playing this because I have to play it two players. There's no other choice, but we're really enjoying it. It's a story driven game. It looks really cool. It's done by the same team that did, uh, <laughs> I want to say chubby rain. But it, the heavy rain for the PlayStation okay. <laughs> Three. But is it? My wife and I call, call it Chubby Rain because I didn't know. I didn't know it was that team. Yeah, because I, I thought they were still Sony, a Sony team. Uh, 
I'm, I, are they not that team? I, I was almost 100% sure that it is the Heavy Rain guys doing this. And there's a weird little link to me that, 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 that sort of links it because I, I've been playing Heavy Rain recently, pulled it out and played a little bit of Heavy Rain. And it's done by like this uh, French studio or this European studio, Quant- Quantum Dream or something like that. Quant- this is Hazelight that, Hazelight. Did, um, that did a way out. Okay. So not Quantic Dream. But they, they actually feel Maybe very, some people from Quantic Dream. Maybe, because they feel very similar in a lot of ways. Because they're both kind of like quick time event games in a way. Yeah. And the other thing too is like... Very story driven. In Heavy Rain, um, you have American characters in a story that's set in America. But it's clear that not all of the writing and voice actors are American. Like you can just still detect the the subtle hint of a French accent under there. And a lot of the like things they say in the dialogue, just the way it's written, is like, oh, that's just kind of a bad translation. Because <laughs> there's this one point where... Just one, English written by non-native yeah. English speakers, right? Where there's this one point where one character says, do you want to find someone dead in a wasteland? And I'm like, I think they're trying to say like an empty lot, but for some reason they say a wasteland. And it's just weird <laughs> the way it kind of comes across. And that's in this game? No, or that's in heavy, in, in heavy Rain. Okay. And this game is sort of the same as you've got these two, it's basically about these two guys in prison and they're breaking out and they decide to break out together. So it's very like, you know, yeah. Oh, it's a buddy kind of uh So I'm gonna up. I'm gonna go on a bit of a tangent with this. So uh, did you see the game awards when the voice actor for this game was on the game awards? No. Okay. Did you see this, Norm? Okay. <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners would have seen this. So one of the voice actors, a French guy, clearly like, yeah. Very and like French. I said, like, that's the thing is like, he's doing this, like almost like American heavy, like yeah, yeah, I'm from yeah. Joyzy kind of accent. Yeah. But, but he's clearly you, you hear that French in there. And, so, it, yeah. and it, I don't know if he's French Canadian bit. or if he's yeah. from France, but very heavy French accent. Right. Yeah. And this really boisterous guy. And, um, <laughs> he was at the game awards and they had him there to introduce like a clip of the upcoming game. And this was at the time when EA was going through all the battlefront stuff. And there was the huge uproar about the loot boxes yeah, and yeah. EA is the worst company in the world and blah, 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 blah. And he's up there and I don't know if he had a few drinks cause he was nervous before <laughs> or what, but he went off on this tangent and like, um, Jeff Keeley, who's the host of the game awards and this really, like he's been around the game industry forever, um, as a host is like trying to rein this guy in. He's up there with him and he's like, you know, okay, come on. We have to show the preview. And the guy's like, I love EA. And he's like, God, everyone who says EA is bad. And it's like, it's hilarious. It's so funny. Like it's such a funny clip. And to bring it all back to video game music, uh, one of this, uh, one of my favorite like uh, video game music remixer guys is a guy by the name of Graham Grimecraft. He's really popular. And uh, he posted on Twitter, uh, looks like Jeff Keeley needs a way out. And it was like one of the best tweets I've ever seen. And he had like a little clip underneath. And then just like a week ago, he's like, I'm actually playing this game and it's really good. Like he replied to his tweet. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So I, I don't know how far I am into the game. Like I said, I've been avoiding all, everything on it. So yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. really know how far I'm in, but we've put in a, a good amount of hours so far. And it's, it's, it's pretty enjoyable. I mean, it's, uh, it hasn't really like totally sucked me in yet because I keep getting a little taken out by things like the weird accents, some of the weird story beats, the pacing a little off in places, but you know, yeah. it's hard to do in a game. So, you know, you got to give it a little bit of leeway. Yeah. But, it looked like a cool game though. Like from everything I saw. So yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure that it's building up to something that's going to be really great. So yeah, a uh, big ending, yeah. a big finish. So I'm, uh, like I said, I gotta, gotta stay clean on this. Right on. All right, so uh, that's a bit pricey for the giveaway, but I think uh, I think we're going to give away 
I don't know, like this, this month's going to be tricky because like pretty much everything we're playing, there's a remake or a re-release or something out there. Should we just put everything in? Like I was thinking you know, of putting any in sort of a point and that's uh, easy to get on like well, good any, old games anything or, we talk uh, about, right? or something. Yeah. Anything we talk about because most of these games have re-releases. So well, like I was just telling Mike before the podcast, I mean, Curse of Monkey Island just got recently uh, released on Steam. So, yeah. you know, there you go. There you good go. time to play one of the well, greats. I'm going to, I'm going to officially put Thimbleweed Park in. Yeah. But if there's any of the other games that we've talked about here that you, if you win and you really want to play, just when I reach out to you, you know, let me know that that's the one you really want. You have my and, copy uh, of Staff of Kings. There. Play, play a Fate of Atlantis. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We'll, we'll mail you a copy of <laughs> Staff of Kings. But uh, yeah, if there's anything out there that you, that you uh, particularly want to play, let us know. Uh, and we'll we'll do that one instead. But I'm going to drop in Thimbleweed Park just because I know the great thing about Thimbleweed Park is it's literally out on everything. Like there's no, as long as you have anything that plays games, including a phone, you can play Thimbleweed Park. And just on that note, I just wanted to mention that uh, Jordan pointed out the awesome Switch release that it's getting on yes. uh, on that, what is it uh, called? Limited Run. Limited Run are, is doing like a very, obviously a We're very We're not giving limited, you that one, by the way. That one. <laughs> but I mean, if you're interested in Thimbleweed Park or a big fan or whatever, like yeah. Limited Run is doing a really nice, um, collector's boxed edition co- boxed copy of Thimbleweed Park for the Switch yeah. and also a collector's edition for the Switch that includes things like you know a map a newspaper a printed manual and it's like all up in a box that's like the classic PC box size yeah so if you have like other or back in the day you have other like PC Sierra you want to line, it up, you on your line shelf. it up on your shelf yeah. it's just like that and it comes It'll with all right the goodies in. That uh, any PC game came with back in the days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so if you if if you win this game, you play it, and you're like, I really want to, you know, get into this game. You can go buy that special box copy. Yeah. But I think we're not giving that away. No, we're not. <laughs> and I think they are pretty limited. So super it, limited. Yeah. So if you play it and you like it, you know, you jump on it quick because yeah. I think they're pretty limited. And edition. I, I th- I'm pretty sure, not 100 percent sure, that uh, this podcast will like by the time this podcast hits the airwaves. They might be sold out. <laughs> they might be sold out. So, yeah. you know, I think it's going to be a couple of days before this podcast hits that it actually. Yeah, because that, that is dropped, happening so Friday this, and this week, like in, in a couple of days from now. So okay. the podcast will be so actually airing a few days after, after that. So, yeah, a couple of days after. So, so you yeah. know, if you're really interested, you know, you might. Well, get we hope, we yeah. hope you got it before you yeah. listen to the podcast. But anyway, uh, yeah. So um, that is it. Oh, and uh, yeah, I got to talk about how you can win that press. So. To win the prize, very easy. Hop on, I'm just going to say hop on Google and type in VGM Generations and click on one of the links that comes up. And then uh, leave a comment, uh, like, review, post, share, all these good things. So interact with us in any way, shape, art. Sorry. (laughs) Any way, shape, or form on your social media platform of choice. Uh, We like Twitter. We like Facebook. We like uh, comments on SoundCloud. All of these things are great. Uh, And we especially like reviews on iTunes. So, um, which are worth bonus entries. Uh, so yeah, do any of those things. That's your entry into the contest and you can win Thimbleweed Park, uh, not the collector's edition. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, of course, you can always send us an email address uh, like or an email at the email address vgmgenerations at gmail.com. Suggest a topic like Callum did and maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll do it. No purchase necessary. No purchase necessary. That's right. Just listens necessary because yeah. otherwise how would you know? Uh, yeah, so that's it for week one of point and click adventures. We hope you enjoyed it and we will catch you guys next time.